as we are heading into the Christmas season. And I don't know about you, but I've been particularly feeling Christmassy this year. I remember back in October thinking, I'm looking forward to Christmas carols. Anybody else feeling the Christmas vibe? Okay, some of you are out there. Uh, others are a bunch of Scrooges out there and some Grinches. That's fine. That's fine. But I'm looking forward to, uh, to Christmas. And I've been thinking a lot about Christmas. And particularly, I've been just dwelling on the humility of Christmas. And tonight, that's what I want to talk about. The humility of Christmas and what we can think about and learn about with regards to Christmas. It's easy for us to get caught up in the consumerism of Christmas. It's easy for us to get caught up in the, the holiday and in some good things like family and, and whatnot. But often it can, it can, you know, just get caught up in the busyness and you just miss, you miss the whole point. And tonight I want to talk about this particular aspect of humility. This is kind of a weird topic to talk about in some ways because I'm going to be talking about pride, I'm going to be talking about humility, and by no means do I want to come at this subject as though I've got this thing figured out. Like, I am so humble, guys, and you really just need to learn from me, just bask in my humility. Uh, in fact, I've often joked with people, with Daniel and others, that if I was to write another book, uh, it would be on humility. Maybe I would title it The Legend memoirs in a life of humility and then it'd just be a glossy of my face with like signed across it <laughs> on this is a true story by the way i was in a bookstore and there actually is a book called the legend and it's it is an autobiography by this guy an actor anyway go look it up the legend but you know this is the weird part though isn't it about talking about humility it's a weird part about talking about pride the truth is is that every one of us deal with pride pride is something that our culture just breeds. It's something that we as human beings are bent towards. We are prideful people. And it's something that we need to come to grips with. And as I've thought about pride, one of the things that, that, I, that I've just considered about my own life, and maybe you can appreciate this, is how much our pride and our identity are intertwined. And, and they feed off of each other. Now here's the weirdest part though about me and my own you know, challenges with pride. I didn't really deal a lot with pride until I became a Christian. It's odd how that is. Before I was a Christian, I just felt like life was very meaningless, and I didn't really care about anything, and I just kind of went along with my life, and I didn't really care. Then I became a Christian, all of a sudden, life mattered. And I went from like this black and white world to this color world, and all of a sudden I cared. But how quickly I went from finding my identity in Jesus as I put my trust in him to trying to find my identity in everything else. And maybe some of you can relate. I know this might sound weird, but listen, as a pastor, the church and pastors and people working in the church deal with pride like crazy. Pride is a major problem in the church. Pride is a major problem amongst Christians. I have a friend of mine who's been a mentor and particularly when I started Apologetics Canada. He was mentoring me in that, and I, I wanted to be mentored by him because he was on the board of some major organizations, and I thought he would have something to share with me, and I could learn from him about organizations and structure and, and, and uh, how, to, how to do this in a way that's going to work. And I'll never forget our first breakfast together. He said to me, Andy, you know what the major problem is that we deal, that I deal with in each of the organizations I've been a part of? 
I'm like, what's that? He said, pride. Period. Pride destroys organizations. It destroys the church. It will destroy you. And that's exactly what I experienced when I first became a Christian. I become a Christian. I'm following after Jesus. And I went from somebody that didn't care to all of a sudden somebody that does care. And then all of a sudden I started questioning my identity. There are two things that I began to question with my identity as soon as I became a Christian. The first one's easy for me to talk about. Fairly humorous. When I first became a Christian, uh, I went off to college shortly after that, and I immediately began to lose my hair. And it was, there were some challenging moments, guys. As I remember as a college student waking up and looking at my pillow and seeing my loved ones lying there dead, <laughs> right, from the follicle wars the night before. And I remember holding them, right, and I'm thinking, I'm playing with borrowed time here. Like, like I am not winning this thing. And I'm coming to grips with, am I going to be okay, you know, trading a comb for a razor? And I, and I wasn't happy about this. This is a true story. This is real talk, as Freddie would say. Uh, I was heading home from college, going down to Oregon. I'm listening to the radio. It's like midnight. And this thing comes on, and it's selling this herbal remedy for baldness. And I'm glued into this. Like, I'm like, yes, finally. You know, we've got, we can do all sorts of things with technology, but we haven't solved this, right? And this herbal remedy, and I'm like, I'm buying into every bit of it. True story, the next day, I call them up. And, and I order this herbal remedy to solve my baldness. And, or my, my, my balding. any rate... This thing, this package, when I get it in the mail, I'm like so excited, right? I pull this thing out. It's this bottle with these gigantic horse pills in there. And so it's like, okay, you've got to eat like five of these a day. And I'm like, okay, you know, like it's worth it, right? I got I to save my, my follicles, right? So I'm eating these horse pills. And then, true story, there is this ointment that you need to put on your head and you need to massage it into your head twice a day. And I'm like doing this, right? I'm massaging this ointment. I'm taking these pills. And then this, this moment like occurs to me where I'm like, what is it that I'm eating? Like, I don't even know. I could be like dying from these pills. I don't even know what this ointment on my head is. And, and it's doing nothing, by the way. Absolutely nothing. And then it was one of those moments where the Lord had to like gently sit beside me, you know, and the arm around and say, like, Andy, they're going. They're gone, Andy. <laughs> my, at, at, at this point, my hair looked like the ocean tide had gone out, never to return, right? And it's, it's just one of those moments where I realized, that, listen, I, this is becoming an identity issue for me. I'm trying, I'm trying to find myself in this. Maybe some of you can relate. And that one, that's a funny one. And you're like, oh, you know, but some of you, it's not funny. You're like, dude, no, <laughs> tell me about that herbal remedy. It didn't work, right? But then there's others that have been really hard. Maybe you can relate. Maybe, you know, maybe you've got your own issues where, you know, some you're willing to talk about, but there's those other issues that you got going on that are identity issues that are a lot more difficult to deal with. For me, one of my more difficult uh, identity issues that I've had to struggle with is uh, I'm dyslexic. And I remember going to school and having a difficult time in school. I remember having to go to a special class in elementary school to help me learn how to, to read and write. And, and that, was, that was challenging, but not too challenging because I didn't really care about school. I didn't really care about a whole lot. I didn't really try hard at, at high school at all. I just tried to get through high school. But then when I became a Christian, I started caring. And so then I'm like, wow, I'm going to go off to college. And I did go off to college. And then I wanted to try hard in college. And I wanted to you know, do well in my classes. 
And again, I wanted to try to find my identity in those things. And I struggled. I, I, have my, I have my dyslexic struggles. And I tried my very best to ace my exams. And in particular, I'll never forget my psychology uh, class. I would try to ace my psychology test, and I could never do it. And then you'd be like, you know, that's not a big deal or whatever. Like, like no, no, I was like trying. It's, it's one thing when you fail at something you're not trying at, but when you fail at something you're trying at, like, you, said you have to start to, to deal with some deeper issues that's going on in your heart with where are you trying to find yourself? Where are you trying to find your identity? And then I'm like trying to write these papers and I'm having issues and I've got to work on my editing. I've got to work on my spelling. I'm like one of the worst spellers in the world. Some of you can relate. You know, and it was, and it was challenging. It was one of those moments where I'm, I'm in an identity crisis. And maybe some of you can relate. Maybe you've had your own identity crisis. The challenge is, is, is it's how you deal with that identity crisis it's going to affect the way that you're going to deal with your pride, the way that you're going to deal with humility. And I, and I just want to define these terms before we jump into the scriptures tonight. The idea of pride is something that, that we have to think about because pride, we often will talk about negatively, but pride isn't negative, right? There's a positive aspect of pride, and then there's a negative aspect of pride. And so in one sense, pride can be a good thing. Like you can take pride in your work and you can try hard at, at what you're doing or whatever it is that you're building or whatever it might be uh, and, and you can be proud of what you've done. That's, I don't think that that's a bad thing. And in fact, for me as a parent, you can have pride in your children. And this can be a good thing, right? That I love my kids and my, I think my kids are awesome and, I, and I'm proud of them. And in fact, uh, like, I'm not a very emotional guy. Like, I don't tend to, like, weep a whole lot. But every time I'm there with my kids and they're doing some sporting event and they're running or whatever, I'm, like, I'm always, like, getting all emotional and teary. I'm, like, I'm so proud of you. You know, I'm proud of them. And that kind of pride isn't bad. But there's a problem is, is there's other kind of pride. And this other kind of pride tends to creep up when you and I are in one of our identity crises. Because this kind of pride seeks to put yourself above other people. And, and if you can't put yourself above other people, then you tend to push other people down. And I think you would agree with me that the reality of our culture is, is that we'll pay lip service to things like equality, but the truth is, is that you and I live in a world that is not equal, and we don't try to be equal. We live in a world that is constantly jostling for position, that we might try to get an edge on somebody else, that we might be above them. You know what I'm talking about? We do that in all sorts of things. We know that some jobs are looked more highly upon than others. We know that having that car or that home or living in that area or having that education will put you in this other kind of status because we all want that ability to be just a little bit better. Pride. And it's something that we all deal with. Now, humility is interesting. I love the way... Webster Dictionary defines humility. Dictionary defines humility as a freedom from pride. Freedom from this desire, this bent towards wanting to put yourself above other people, this bent towards wanting to push people below you. How are you doing on that? Two thoughts for you. Where's your identity at? What are the areas in your life that you're struggling with your identity? And in what ways is pride trying to creep in 
trying to get you to jostle for position just a little bit higher to put yourself above someone else. But since we go to the scriptures uh, tonight, uh, I want to look at the Christmas story. But particularly as we look at the Christmas story, the thing that I want to ask is what can we learn from Jesus? What can we learn from his birth? We're going to look at two things. What can we learn from his birth? And what can we learn from his death? What can we learn from his birth and what can we learn from his death? So if you've got your Bible, turn with me. I'm in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And where we find ourselves in is, is in the Jesus narrative that you and I are so familiar with. We read in Luke chapter 2 that in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Canerius was governor of Syria. I think this is interesting, by the way. This is just a side point. Something that I find cool. Luke and the different gospel writers, they often are writing you a history. This is, this is placed in history. This isn't some story. This isn't, like, this isn't some like fanciful tale telling you about actual events that took place. And this is interesting as well, by the way. I'd always thought this was weird that everybody had to go back to their hometown to register. I thought it was weird until I was in Thailand and, uh, and I was talking with some people there because they had just had a census. And, uh, and they said that they had to go back to their hometown for the census. And I was like, no way, that still happens? And they're like, yeah, in Thailand, that's how we do a census. You have to go back to where you were born. And I'm like, well, why is that? And he looked at me with this look like, you are the stupidest human being on the planet. He's like, because that's where all your documents are. That's where your birth documents are. Like, how else would you do it? I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, sometimes we get kind of caught up in the digital age that we forget it hasn't always been like this. So you need to go back, go back to where your documents are, and that's where you'd register. And so Joseph, verse 4 now, also went up from the town of Nazareth into uh, Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David. So this is interesting. What we're seeing here is that the Messiah, this king, is going to come from Bethlehem, is going to come from the line of David. And, and I think this is, this is one of those moments that you begin to see the humility of Jesus in that he comes from this hodunk town in the middle of nowhere in, in, Gal, Gal, in, sorry, in Nazareth, outside of Galilee. And you're like, well, you know, this isn't where he's supposed to come from. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. But we see that through these circumstances, he does come to Bethlehem. And Jesus is born there. And more than that, he's born in the line of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne. But yet we look at his humble beginnings as Joseph, as his family, went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child, we can already see that this, this isn't going good for them in, in this society, that, that they're not even married and she's got a child, and then she's telling everybody, hey, it's all good because this child is from the Holy Spirit, it's from God, and people are like, yeah, right, you know, this, this whole thing's messed up, and then they've got to come probably to one of his uh, relatives' homes. And while they were there, the time came that the, for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is just a historical note as well. Most likely they went to relatives. If they didn't go to relatives, there are people at that time and today that would open up their house for, for extra money to allow guests to come in. And I'm sure that the city was incredibly busy because of people coming for the census. But the way that they built homes 2,000 years ago is still the way that they build homes in places like Nepal. 
And I've actually had the, the privilege of staying in one of these homes. The way that a home like this would have been built would have been built in, in two to three stories. It's just a square home. In the middle, uh, in the bottom floor of that home is where you would keep all your animals. It's also where you'd keep any of your, like, um, your food and, and cleaning supplies and all that kind of stuff. You keep that in the bottom. It's just a dirt floor. And, and I've been in one of these homes. That's where the animals are. They keep them there because it's warmer, it's safer, and it's easier to take care of them. You don't have to leave the house. They're just right there. And then the next floor is a floor that you would stay on, and the next floor is a stay, floor that you would stay on. And they tend to be big open rooms. And so what we're hearing is that those rooms were full. And probably because of their, uh, what, what was going on between them not even being married and having a child, right? They're, they're, they're seen as lower, right? And they're, they're, they're sent into the, the room with the animals, and it's there that Jesus is born. And you get this sense right off the, the, the bat in the Gospels that everything that you think would be the case is the exact opposite. The way that you think that the king of kings would come into this world is exact opposite of the way that you would think. You would think that he would come from this great town, and he comes from a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. You think that he would come in this majestic majesty, but instead he's, he's born to a teenage girl out of wedlock in a, a room that's made for animals, and he's laid into a trough. And what you immediately are encounter is just this incredible humility in the person of Jesus. Not only that, but his name is a common name. Jesus is a common name. However, his name means God saves. And we begin to see this story play out. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared in the angels, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Isn't it so interesting that here the king is born, and who is the first to get this birth announcement? Is the people that really were one of the lowest on the social economic ladder um, shepherds were awkward people shepherds were people that spent all day by themselves out in fields throwing rocks at sheep right and protecting them from wild animals you know these weren't your elite that you would imagine oh if if god's born and you know you know that you know this king is born you're going to go and you're going to tell the the, the kings, and you're going to go tell all those people, right, that in our culture we think have the highest status, and instead God comes and he announces his birth to those that are the lowest on the status. Again, it's this upside-down kingdom. The way that you think it would be is the complete opposite of the way that it is. And as I was listening and thinking about the way that these angels praise Jesus, I think it's interesting that they say, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on the earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This, this is reminiscent to something that Peter says in 1 Peter about whom God's favor rests. And this is something that you and I really need to think about. As Peter says, he 
says in uh, chapter 5, verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Who does God's favor rest? Well, his favor rests on human beings in that Jesus came to live and die for us, but his favor rests on those that don't lift themselves up in pride and try to put themselves above other people trying to find their identity in themselves. But his favor rests on those that instead find their identity in God in whose image they are made. And in humility, not trying to put yourself above somebody else, but in fact coming and seeking to lift other people up. That those are whom his favor rests. And in fact, if you don't, and if you do find yourself in pride, I think it's a sobering thought to think that God is opposed to you. That's a challenging thought. God Almighty is in opposition to you. You are not going to win that. You're in trouble. You know, as a, as a pastor, this is something that, um, that we have to be so cautious about. A, I have to be cautious about my own heart and that I'm not getting prideful. It is very easy, by the way, for a pastor to get prideful. It's very easy as well for a pastor to get down on themselves. But that's also still just a part of pride working out. Is you're trying to make something of yourself instead of being found in who you're made in. But I have to be careful with just with those people that you're ministering to because it's easy to put people into a position in which they're going to take a fall. In those moments where people come to Christ, you have to be careful that, that they are, you know, that you don't, you don't elevate them too quickly. If, and you know what I mean by that? Like we have to be careful even those people that are leading worship because it's easy to become prideful when you lead worship. It's easy to become prideful when you start serving, when you start serving in ways, particular ways that are, that are in front of other people or if you're preaching or if you're doing, you know, all sorts of things that, that, that begin to build in you this idea that, man, I'm pretty great. I'm pretty awesome. Everybody loves my voice or everybody thinks that I'm a great speaker or whatever it might be. And then I start to think that I'm better than I ought to think. And I begin to put myself above other people or we begin to put ourselves above other people. I think it's interesting that when you read the Gospels, this is something that the disciples do over and over and over again. They are constantly jostling for position. And when you read the Gospels, it just gets to the point of ridiculous. And, and you wouldn't think it was true unless you just lived a while, right, and just watched what happens even in churches and realized that this is exactly the kind of thing that happens. They, they constantly get in arguments with each other about who's going to be the greatest. Who's the greatest? Which one does Jesus love the most? Who's going to be at his right hand? Jesus, wh which one of us is best? This is really what happens. We see this in Luke 22, verse 24. It says, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was considered to be the greatest. Which, is us, which of us is the best, Jesus? And you read that and you're like, you've got to be kidding me. No, 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 that's what we do. That's exactly what we do. And it's interesting, I don't know why. I don't, I don't quite understand why when I became a Christian this became more of a problem. That's something to dwell on. You know, why is it that these disciples are with Jesus and all of a sudden pride begins to take root? I, my guess would just be that this is a spiritual battle. That the reality is is Satan didn't care about me until I cared about Jesus. And, and then you find yourself in a battle that you never knew existed, that you had never paid attention to. 
and it's quite easy to begin to lift yourself up. So listen what Jesus says to them. He says to his disciples as they're they're fighting over who's the best. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those that exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. that. It's not supposed to be this way with you. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. It should be the opposite. He says, for, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Now, notice what he's saying here is he's tapping into the culture. And he's saying, listen, in our culture at large, and it was the same then as it is now, who's more important? Who do you look up to more? The one that's at the table or the one that's serving the table? And of course we all know, oh, of course it's the person at the table. That's who we would think is the greatest. But think about just this in our own culture. I mean, Jesus could use all sorts of ways to to talk about what's going on in our culture today. What are the ways in which you and I try to put ourselves above other people? The ways that we try to put ourselves above other people, maybe with our education or with our grades or with our money or with our cars. Or what about with your social media uh, presence? How many followers you have? How many likes you have? I mean, your, your YouTube channel or whatever it might be. My point is, is that you and I get trapped up in our pride so easily. And as soon as we do, we start to question our identity. And as soon as we question our identity, we try to find our identity. And one of the ways that we try to find our identity is by putting ourselves above other people and pushing others down instead of lifting people up. And Jesus speaks into this cultural moment and he says, is it not the one who is, um, who's at the table, right? He's just identifying, that's what our culture does. That's what your culture does. But he says, but I am among you as one who serves. I didn't come to you in that way. I came to you in humility, somebody that was free of pride. And this is what we read in Philippians. This is what Paul does in Philippians chapter 2, is that he, he uses Jesus as a moment to challenge the church there in Philippi, saying, listen, you need to think about something. You need to think about the way that Jesus came and the way he served. And this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. This is something for any of you that I've officiated your wedding. Daniel, I just officiated yours. I read Philippians chapter 2. Because this is, this is one of the, this is the verse of the, or chapter that I read for every wedding that I do. Because if you want to experience pride, if you want to experience moments of questioning your identity, marriage is an amazing way of doing that. It's an amazing way of showing you just how broken you are. But the truth is, this isn't just something that some of us deal with. It's something that all of us deal with. As Paul says this, he says, do nothing, I'm in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Right? Don't put yourself above other people. Take a moment to free yourself from that bent and, and, and seek to lift other people up. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I was looking at this in the Greek this week, and it's interesting. It's very simple in the Greek. It's basically just saying, listen, you need to think about Jesus, is what Paul's saying. This idea of mindset is to ponder. He's saying, you need to think about this. You need to think about the way in which Jesus was born in humility. And he goes in to talk about that, saying this. 
Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate that the King of Kings came, not in grandeur, not in, in, in a way that would be to lift him up in some sort of, you know, like Aladdin moment, right? Where, where he's coming and, and trying to win the heart of this girl and he wants to make himself look as great as possible. Jesus has come to win your heart by making himself as low as possible. Being born as a child. Being born into humble circumstances. Being born in such a way to show you that he is free from pride and his desire is not to lift himself up but to lift you up. His desire is to see you free, free from pride. Now, this means then, and this is something that you and I have to really take to heart. It means that we aren't Jesus. We, we don't have that kind of humility. We are a broken, prideful people. It reminds me when I watched the movie Lord of the Rings. You see, when we watch a movie like Lord of the Rings, we tend to identify as Frodo in the movie. You and I are not Frodo, right? You and I are one of those greedy kings. It's like, hey, Frodo, just let me hold the ring for a moment. I promise I won't do anything bad, right? I promise I can, I can do it, Frodo. I can hold it, right? And, and, and we're those people, right? You're like, no, 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 definitely don't give the ring to that guy because as soon as he gets that power, pride will absolutely corrupt him and they will do horrible things. You and I are not good, not like Jesus. Jesus is humble. He is free from pride. And he demonstrated what that looks like to you and I in his birth. And what Paul's saying here is that you and I need to think more about that. We need to think more about the fact that we need Jesus. We need him as an example. And we need Jesus at work in our hearts dealing with the pride that's constantly taking root. This is something... Uh, this is something that is an ongoing challenge. It's not like you become a Christian and you just deal with this and, and then you're all good, right? Like, oh, I became a Christian, now I don't have to deal with uh, pride or my identity issues anymore. It's like, no, 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 you will constantly struggle with these things. In our broken world, you're going to constantly struggle with your identity. And you're going to have these moments in your life that your pride's going to creep up again and you're going to doubt your identity again. And you're going to need to have a moment with the Lord. And there's going to be times in your life that God's going to have to intervene and he's going to need to humble you. I can't tell you the number of times that God has humbled me. Uh, there have been many moments where I just imagine that the Lord is parting the clouds. And he's like, hey, angels, you need to check this out. Look what I'm going to do to Steiger. This is going to be great. Because Steiger's starting to think he's pretty awesome. But watch this, right? And it's one of those moments where I face plant again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not that amazing, and I really need Jesus. And, God, you need to do a work in my heart again. I told you guys about my dyslexia. I told you about how I wanted to, to make something of myself or start trying hard at school or whatever. I remember um, walking back to class one day. Just I was crying. I'm 18 years old, and I'm, and I'm crying. And I'm having this moment where I'm praying to the Lord because I'm like, Lord, why do I suck so bad? Why do I try so hard at school and I, and I keep just failing? Can you help me? And I know some of you are in exams right now and maybe you're feeling that pressure. 
Maybe you're feeling that anxiety going, man, I just stuck, God. And why do I try really hard at this and I'm not excelling at it like I would like to? But maybe the Lord just needs to speak to you for a moment, as he had to for me, and just said, Andy, that's not where your identity is. So you and I need to be careful that we don't try to find our identity in those things. You know one of the problems with this is? If you try to find your identity in anything outside of Jesus, it will never satisfy you. If you try to find your identity in your wealth, you're always going to find somebody wealthier than you, and you're going to feel like crap about yourself. If you try to find your identity in your intelligence, you're always going to find somebody smarter than you, and just wait, and you'll do something really stupid, and you'll feel like crap about yourself. Like, that's how it works. And, and if you try to find your identity in your education or in your job, like, like you name it, what will happen is you will find yourself on one wild ride. You'll have these moments where you do well and you'll start to feel great about yourself, but then those moments don't last very long because then you start to descend down into a valley of where you suck again and you start hating on yourself again and you're trying to pick yourself back up again and then you can find some other place of trying to put yourself above other people and you're trying to push other people down so that you can find yourself again and you do it all over again and again and again and again. You're absolutely lost. There's a verse in the Bible that has, um, has spoken to me and continues to speak to me in which Jesus has, has come to a, a broken world. It's in Matthew chapter 11. Dealing with broken disciples, dealing with broken people all around him that are on this roller coaster ride of trying to find themselves. And he says this, maybe you need to hear this tonight with whatever you got going on in your life, whatever kind of pride you've got going, whatever kind of identity crisis you're in. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, free from pride. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, listen, those of you that are trying to find yourself, you're on that roller coaster ride, you need to find your identity in him. You need to come back to that Christmas narrative, and you need to take a moment to reflect once again on who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and what he's teaching you to be. This was a, an important message uh, in my life. As uh, many of you know, I, I, I came from a broken family, broken background. My, my, mom, my grandma was broken, my mom was broken, my whole family's been broken. And may, one of the major issues that's been uh, in my family is pride. I would say is the, probably the biggest issue is just pure narcissism, pride. And I remember when I came to faith in Jesus going, Lord, will you please save me from that? Like, I've, I've seen my family struggle in that area, continue to struggle in it. I've seen how they've destroyed every relationship around them. God, would you please help me? And, and, it's, and it was amazing as I came to Jesus and I found that freedom. But like I said, you still struggle with it. And it's something that you and I will continue to struggle with. And as I close here, I want to I just bring us over into communion. Because when we look at Jesus' birth, we see humility. But when we look at Jesus' death, we see humility. We see that he was free from pride in his birth. And we see that he was free from pride 
in his death. And it has something to teach you and I about what it looks like to live in a world in which we continue to question our identity. Paul says this now in verse 8. He says, And Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, you know one person who, who understood this was, uh, was John the Baptist. I was talking to Crystal, one of the pastors here at North Sea. Her and I were talking at lunch today and, uh, about pride, about humility. And Crystal was saying, Andy, that just reminds me of John the Baptist. And, uh, and she's talking about how when John the Baptist, what, what does he do with his ministry? John the Baptist is doing ministry and everything's going great and everybody think the world of John the Baptist and then Jesus comes along and, Paul, and John does what? He says, everybody look to Jesus. Jesus is the one that you need, that, that, that was coming. He's the one that you need to put your attention to. He's the one that you need to follow. And what did John say? He goes, I need to make him greater and I need to become less. And th- this is what you and I need to do. Jesus needs to become greater and you and I need to become less. And then what happens? Jesus becomes greater and John becomes less and the disciples come to John and they're like, John, are you okay? Like everybody's going to Jesus. Are you bothered by this? And John's like, no, I'm not bothered by it. This is what was supposed to happen. But yet, did John go along and have no doubts and and was everything okay for John? No. John went along with his ministry. He wanted to see Jesus flourish, but Jesus didn't start doing what he thought Jesus would do. Instead of being the kind of king that John thought that would lead this revolt against the Romans, Jesus ends up dying on a cross. And, 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 as, and as all this is happening, John's going, you know, before John dies himself, he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing, Jesus? Are you actually the Messiah or do we need to go find somebody else? Did he have his moments of doubt? Yes, he had his moments of doubt. Will you and I have our moments of doubt? Yes, we will have our moments of doubt. We will have our moments of struggle. And in those moments, Jesus says this. In Luke 9, he says, you need to take up your cross daily, he says. You need to take up your cross daily and follow me. What what does that mean? It means this, that Jesus set an example for you, not just in his birth, but in his death. That Jesus was willing to die in his humility. He was willing to die to his pride. Are you and I willing to take up our cross daily, and in those moments where we try to find our identity outside of Jesus, in those moments where we become prideful as we begin to try to lift ourselves up and push other people down, it's in those moments when we catch ourselves, are we willing to to pick up our cross and die to that pride once again? Are we willing to humble ourselves? Are we willing to be free from having to put yourself above other people? Listen, as we come to the communion table, that's the question that I want to leave you with. Maybe you're in a moment in your life where where you need to take up your cross and there are some stuff going in your life that you need to die to. And as you come to the communion table, this is a visual representation of what Jesus has done for you. It's a visual, visual representation of his humility put on display for you that he was free from pride. He was free from pride to such a degree that he was willing to die for you and even while he was being murdered, he forgives those that are murdering him. (laughs) that's one of those moments where I'm like, yep, I'm not Jesus. I am totally not Jesus. Jesus, you are so much greater than me because that is about the last thing that I would do. 
first of all Jews, I wouldn't have been born in a trough. I would have been born in some sort of great on mansion, and I wouldn't have died on a cross, and I would definitely not have forgiven a bunch of people that did it as they spit on me and they mocked, on, mocked me and ridiculed me. But he is great. And the truth is, is that you and I need to lift him up, and he needs to become greater, and you and I need to become lesser. But not lesser in this idea that, that we're not worthy. As we come to the communion table, it reminds us that we are. And he thinks the world of you, and he loves you so much that he died for you. And so listen, the, the, the worship team's going to come up, and they're going to get ready to play. And I just pray that you just meet with the Lord right now. Maybe you just need to, I just want to encourage you, just close your eyes, and just take a moment with the Lord. And just ask God to just convict you in what areas that you are not free from pride right now. In what areas do you need to take up your cross and that you need to die to? And when you're ready, the worship team's going to lead us in, in, in worship in a moment here. And when you're ready, I just want to encourage you to come and partake of this meal, remembering that you have been forgiven. And that God does love you and that he has given you an example and that we can follow him and we can trust him, but we need to find our identity in him again. Just as a way of reminder, this meal is a meal of community. This meal is a meal for those that have placed their trust in Jesus and that are in right relationship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. So maybe there's something going on in your life where you're not in right relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to encourage you to get that right before you do come to the table. Reminder that it is uh, gluten-free bread and that there will be people on the, along the sides that would love to pray for you. Maybe tonight you just need to uh, come and have somebody just pray over you. I would encourage you to do that. Let me pray for you now uh, as we go into worship. Lord God, I am so thankful for Christmas. I'm so thankful that Christmas is more than about Santa Claus and gifts. It's more than putting Christmas lights on your house and putting up trees in your home. God, I am so thankful that Christmas is about you and about how much you love us and about the humility that you demonstrated. And I'm so thankful that you're free of pride. I'm so thankful that you are good and that you are a king that I want to be in relationship for the rest of my life for eternity. I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. God, I pray that that would be our prayer. And in those moments where I am trying to find myself outside of you, God, would you convict me? Would you help us that we might die to our pride and that we might humble ourselves and come and follow your example once again? And so as we come and we partake of communion, Jesus, would you do a work in us, we pray, in your power and to your glory as we lift you up. And all God's people said.